Stay with me. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning to come to your word as, Lord, we arrived on this rainy Sunday, and uh, Lord, it brings about uh, contemplation often as we consider who you are and, uh, Lord, that you are provider. And so we pray this morning that as we look at your word and as we diagnose uh, and try to mine uh, the depth of what you communicate here, that you would speak to not just our mind, but our heart and our soul, that Holy Spirit, you would apply the truths of your word uh, to us, that we might live in faith, trusting the character of who you are, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So before we begin uh, this morning in our series that we started a few weeks ago entitled God Is, I want to ask everyone to do something, and that is to pull out your phone. Pull out your phone, and this is uh, your free permission to pull out your phone. No one's going to think that you're checking the news, you're checking the weather, or you're, you know, RSVPing for brunch. So pull out your phone, and I want to encourage you to do something. We did this last week. We're trying something new, and I think it's going to be helpful to our community, and that is I want you to text the word hi to the number on the screen. This is our text number. Text the word hi to the number on the screen. And here's why. We have uh, created uh, this outline for you to engage every single Sunday through texting in the word hi when you get here to this number. And it will, it will redirect you to the Bible app, the Holy Bible app. I think it's the most downloaded app. Uh, most of you have it on your phone. If not, you should, you should get it. It's a wonderful app. Or it'll just direct you to your internet browser. And if you scroll through that, you're going to see a few things. You're going to see the announcements that Pastor Jesse shared so you can have that reminder. And you're also going to see the text that we're going to be working through this morning and uh, a majority of the slides that I'm going to be going through. So don't peek ahead. That's just a little, don't peek ahead at the slides, but you'll notice that there's note sections on the bottom. You can take notes, and there's all types of helpful uh, information there. And so the reason I want to encourage you to do that is because we're starting this year in this series called God Is, and we're looking at eight attributes and characteristics of God. As we said, it was formed through the community, through your statements and stories about how God has worked in your life. And so we compiled those and we arranged a series according to your stories around eight characteristics of God. And we've, we've looked at God is faithful. We've looked at God is loving. And this morning we'll look at God is provider. And the reason I wanted you to, to text in and to, to look at that is I want to encourage you to take notes. Even some of you that are like, take notes, like I, I'm not a note taker, you know? And some of you, you have your moleskin, you have your notebook, you got you right on the backside of the notes section on the worship program. If you have a system, keep up with it. But if not, you could take notes on this Bible app through texting in, and it will stay there, and it will remain with you. And here's why. A.W. Tozer, who is a, a theologian, he has a great quote, and he says, the most important thing about a person is what they think about God. And that's true because what you think about God shapes everything about who you are. It shapes your desires, shapes how you treat and view your career, your relationships, romance, your pursuits and your passions. Everything about you is shaped about what you believe about God. And as we begin this year in this series looking at the character of God, I think it's important that we begin to engage not just passively by listening but 
actively by taking notes or just writing questions. I want to encourage you to be honest with yourself. If you hear something or you're listening to any of the sermons throughout this series and it prompts you to ask a question, write it down. If you're in a community group, share it in your community group. Share it with a friend or come talk to an elder, a pastor, a deacon uh, after the service because the most important thing about us is what we think about God. And we have to have freedom to be honest about our questions and our doubts and our concerns. And I think note-taking is a really helpful way to do that. And so I hope you texted in and you can engage with us on that. And uh, as we begin uh, this morning looking at God is provider. Now, one of the beautiful things about our church is that when you look around our church, our church is very diverse. All different cultural backgrounds, different languages, different places in life, different struggles, different careers, different life stage. But there's one thing that we all have in common. Uh, there's many things that we all have in common, but one that really comes forward, and that is that we all have a common pursuit. Here's our common pursuit. Regardless of where you're at, whether you're, you're checking out the Christian faith and you're asking questions, you're just beginning your journey of faith, or you've been a believer for a long, long time, we all have a common pursuit, and our common pursuit is this. We're always looking for the next thing. That's, that's who we are as human beings, right? We're always looking for the next thing. So we're looking for the next promotion or the next level in our career. We're looking for the next level in our relationships and our romantic relationships. We're looking forward to the next season in our family. We're looking forward and ahead to the next desired comfort or luxury or the next iteration of our comfort and luxury. When it comes out, we get excited. We're always looking for the next thing. It's not necessarily bad, right? We're just always captivated by moving to the next level or the next season or the next stage in our life, in different arenas of our life. Part of the problem of always looking ahead and having this common pursuit of looking forward is that it makes contentment across the board difficult. Right, Because you may have contentment in your career, but not contentment in your relationships. You may have contentment in the season of life at which you're in, but not contentment in your faith. We're always kind of battling this sense of contentment across the board. It's difficult for us because we're always looking for the next thing. And part of our problem is that we don't have God's blueprint, right? As we're, we're seeking to lead a life and to follow uh, after uh, Jesus and to, to shape and mold our life after him, or as we're beginning this journey of faith and we're asking questions and we're looking for the next thing, it becomes difficult to find contentment because we don't know God's blueprint. We don't know what he's up to. We don't know what he's going to do. And so we live in the here and now, and we're trying to decipher what is the best approach and what is the next thing to run after and how do we get to the next level in our career, our relationships, our family. And that's not a bad thing. As I said, in fact, Scripture encourages us to look ahead. It tells us to, to recognize that through faith, the old has passed away and the new has come, and Christ has brought about new life in you. 
with new desires and new passions and new pursuits. In fact, it even tells us to begin to seek to honor God by engaging in new good works that we might honor Jesus with our life, not as a performance for God so that he'll love us, but in response to God's love, we seek to take every aspect of who we are and to honor God with it as we look ahead to new things. But as we begin to engage in this, and as we we pray to a God that promises us that he's listening and that he's working good in your life, as we saw last week in Romans 8, that if you love him, he's working and shaping all things for good, the difficulty comes is that we don't know God's blueprint. We don't know step one, two, three, four, five. We could only live in this chapter. We don't know what next chapter brings. In fact, many of us, have a difficult time because we're living at the end of a chapter and we're living on a cliffhanger, right? Like, what's going to happen next? How is God going to work all of this out? And so it becomes difficult for us, especially now because we live in a highly comparative culture. Have you noticed that? We live in a highly comparative culture. We are always comparing ourselves with other people. Now, this is common. This has been a part of human nature since the beginning. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Do not envy. We're always looking at what other people have and have experienced and have found, and we're we're comparing ourselves, and we're becoming envious. But things have changed. It wasn't long ago that your access to envy was somewhat limited. It was contained. Your access to envy was really in, in regards to your personal communication and conversation with neighbors friends, co-workers, classmates, as you interacted with them and as you heard their stories about what's happening in their life or as you saw them in the workplace or you were out with them socially, as you had this personal experience with people, it would give, bring about this comparing nature and this envy that would well up. That's not the case anymore. There is no containment to envy. Our access to envy is unlimited because of technology. You you don't actually have to to talk to someone face-to-face to see what they want to promote to you about their life. Social media promotes to you carefully curated stories from your neighbors, your friends, your coworkers, your classmates, celebrities, complete strangers about what they want you to see about their life. And you get to see all these different aspects of who they are and what does it bring about in you. Envy. Wow, look where they are. I always, t- always uh, joke that a lot of times people, when they go out, they'll take this, this photo. It'll maybe be 100 takes but they want to get this right photo so it looks like they're somewhere really, really cool, but in actuality, there's only four people there. But when you're looking at it, you're like, wow, look where they are. Carefully curated stories that brings about envy as we compare ourselves to other people. And in fact, one of the things that's really unique about the cultural moment that we're living in is that we are connected with every culture, with every country, every people group all over the world instantaneously. If something goes viral in Korea today, it will most likely go viral here. Think about that. Do you remember Gangnam Style? People were like hopping around like they're on a horse. Started in Korea, it was here in an instant. Right now people are watching some Netflix show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, something about finding joy in your life. People are just like throwing stuff in the streets. 
they're taking everything out of their closets. And, and, and the reason that this, these things become so big is because everybody wants to be involved in the conversation. Everybody wants to, to, to not feel like they're left out because we're always comparing ourselves with other people and we're, we have this envy welling up in us. And here's what happens. Because our access to envy is unlimited and it tests our contentment and we begin to feel a sense of discontentment on all these different areas of our life, it brings about fear or doubt of God's provision. We look at our life and, and we, we, we know where we want our life to go and we compare our life to other people and, and we want to experience what other people have found and what they have and we live in this highly comparative culture and we're full of envy at times and then we begin to doubt God's provision. We say, God, why haven't you done that for me? I've been praying and I've been asking and I've been looking for you to change this situation or to bring this into my life and I've been waiting and you haven't done anything. Are you ever going to do anything? Are you going to provide for me or are you just providing for everybody else? We begin to doubt who God is because we don't have his blueprint. You know, uh, a couple in the Old Testament that we can relate with because they felt this way too is Abraham and Sarah, the, the fixture of our passage this morning. Abraham and Sarah were 75 years old, and they were living in a, a region, in a land called Haran, with their family, and they had employees and livestock, and they were living their life, and they were having a great life, it seems like. But they had one thing that they were waiting for God to provide, and they had been waiting for 75 years. And that's a child, waiting and waiting and waiting, Everyone around them is presumably having children. You see, even in this culture, to have children was really where your sense of value and worth came in. How many kids could you have? And Abraham and Sarah have zero. Things are going well. They have contentment in their career. Their marriage is going well, and there's contentment, but there is not contentment in their family. When is God going to provide? They're waiting 75 years, and, and God arrives to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I want you to move from Haran to Shechem, this land in Canaan. It's a 400-mile journey. I want you to uproot your entire family, everyone that works with you, everything. I want you to take everything, and I want you to move 400 miles to a new land that you've never been to in Cana. And then God says to Abraham, and I am going to provide you a son. Abraham's like, hey, everybody, hey, hey, pack up the stuff. We're going right now. I don't care, 400 miles, 4,000 miles. We are going to go. God has said he's going to bring a son. We have been waiting for 75 years. We're going to pack everything up. Everyone's coming. No problem, God. We're going to go. And he heads out to Cana with this promise that God is going to bring him a son, the thing that he's been waiting for, the thing that Sarah has been waiting for. And she receives the promise too. Abraham turns 76. No child yet. 77. No child yet. 78? No. 79? No. 80. It's been five years he's been waiting. God has told him he's going to provide a son. 80 years old, five years. No child. 85? No. 90? No. It isn't until Abraham is 100 years old that God provides the son that he promised him. He had to wait 
25 years on top of all of the 75 years that he waited prior. God promises him a son and he waits 25 years. But it wasn't easy for him. You see, sometimes we read this in the Bible and you're like, yeah, but this is Abraham we're talking about. Forefather of the faith. He was capable of waiting 25 years for a son. I can't wait 25 minutes for God to act upon my request. This is Abraham. I'm not Abraham. But this wasn't easy for Abraham and Sarah. As they're waiting, 76, 77, 78, 80 years old, as they're waiting, it becomes more and more difficult for Abraham and Sarah to trust that God is going to provide. They begin to doubt God's provision. In fact, after 10 years of waiting, when Abraham is 85 years old, he and his wife Sarah have a conversation, and the proposition is brought that Abraham should just go and conceive a child with Sarah's servant, Hagar. They're tired of waiting. Abraham wants a child, and Sarah sees that, and she's just, it, it, I think it's with me, so go to, to Hagar, and Abraham does. And he conceives a, a son with Hagar named Ishmael. And, and then they, they, they feel the brokenness of their sin and, and this, this weak point in their life when they doubt God's provision and they take this action that they should not have taken. In fact, God has to come in and intervene to protect Hagar and Ishmael. But then they continue waiting after those 10 years and that weak moment where their sin is really manifested and they doubt God's provision and they wait for 15 more years. Clinging to God's provision, and God finally provides after 25 years of waiting. But this isn't the only moment that Abraham's faith in God's provision is tested. You see, Abraham is tested in a really, really difficult way in our passage this morning. Look what it says in the beginning, starting in verse 1 in Genesis 22. It says, after these things, so now Isaac is, is grown up, he's a young man now, God tested Abraham again and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whose name means laughter. What a fitting name. Whom you love, of course, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Can you imagine that? Abraham finally has a child when he turns 100 years old. He waited 25 years for this promised son. He's grown up. He's spent this time together as a family, has all these memories. And his son is a young man. It's a son of promise. And then God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to offer him, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. What? Why? Why? This is the son, God, that you made me wait 25 years for. This is the son that you promised me, that came with all types of blessing, that you said that you were going to establish an everlasting covenant with and would be the first of many that would number the stars in the sky, and you want me to sacrifice him. It says that Abraham then rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey and he took two of his young men 
with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. See, when you're reading this slow, you're like, wait, wait, Abraham, what are you doing? (laughs) This is where you say to God, no, (laughs) like, no, I don't understand what you're doing. And yet Abraham saddles the donkey, he gets two men, he cuts the wood, he says, Isaac, we have to go on a journey, and they begin to go to the place that God tells them. It says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar, and then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Can you imagine how Abraham is feeling? (laughs) No one else knows What is happening? Isaac doesn't know. The young men don't know. They're just told to stay here with the donkey and and they're going to go over there and worship and and return. And so Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the hand, his hand, the fire, and the knife. So they went both of them together. You see, a burnt offering would have been prepared, there would have been an altar that was prepared. Then they would have taken wood and arranged it in an order, and and an animal would have been taken, oftentimes a lamb, would have been laid on top of the wood and bound to the wood, and then there was a knife and fire because you would slaughter, you would kill the lamb, and then you would light the wood on fire to burn it up, to burn the offering. And so... The young men stay, and and Abraham looks at his son, and he says, I need you to carry the wood. You're younger, you're stronger. You carry the wood on your shoulders, and we're going to go up this hill to where the Lord has told us to go, and I I have the knife, and I have the fire, and we're going to go up. You can feel the tension, right? As Abraham's the only one that knows what's about to take place. So they're heading up the hill, and, and Isaac says to Abraham, my father, And Abraham says, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So they're walking up the hill, and they have everything ready for the the sacrifice. And Isaac's looking around. He's like, hey, Dad, I think we forgot the lamb. Like, where is the lamb? We have everything ready, but we have nothing to, to sacrifice. And then Abraham says to him, listen to this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Abraham looks at Isaac. There's probably so much tension in his body as he's walking up this hill and he's carrying the, the fire and the knife and his son's carrying the wood. And He says, Isaac, God's going to provide. He doesn't know how, but God's going to provide. And Isaac's probably thinking, I I mean, I guess at top of the hill there's like a pasture and dad knows there's like a bunch of lambs up there and God's going to like make one available and we can find the lamb and then we'll we'll make the sacrifice. And so they, they, they keep going up while Abraham is just clinging here to God's provision, trusting in the character of God. God, you're going to provide, right? You're going to provide. When they came to the place of which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Imagine this. They get to the top of the mountains, hill in the region that they're at. 
and Abraham begins to assemble the altar. He gets everything ready. He begins to put the wood in order. And Isaac's looking around like, where are the lambs? I thought there would be a pasture up here, but I don't see anything. His, his father is busy getting everything ready. And then Abraham looks at Isaac. And he says, Isaac, I need you to lay down on the wood. And Isaac is, wait, what? What do you mean lay down on the wood? Like that's for the lamb. That's for the, the, the burnt offering. And you, you can picture it, right? The tears welling up and streaming down Abraham's face as he looks at his son. He says, Isaac, I need you to lay down on the wood. And through this conversation of tears and this emotion between the two, and he takes Isaac and, and he lays him down on the wood and, and he binds him. You could imagine the whole time Isaac looking at it, Dad, what are you doing? What, 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 what is this? And then as he's looking into his son's eyes, it says that he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slaughter his son, and he lifts the knife up as he's looking at his son bound to the altar. And then it says, but the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, looking at his son with the knife raised up. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and he looked and behold, behind him was a ram. They didn't see it before. Caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What a story. But if you're like me when you're reading this story, there's a couple questions you ask, which is, why did Abraham go through with this? Like, I mean, talk about faith to trust God. And why would God ask Abraham to do this? Why? The point of this is just to prove that Abraham feared God. What's the reason? You see, God had a bigger plan, both to confirm to Abraham his character that he is a provider, and that just as he provided for his son, he will protect the promise given to his son and all the descendants after him, but also that God has a greater provision in store. There's something really interesting that you see in this passage is that Abraham, from the beginning, trusted God's provision. He was confused. He didn't have the blueprint. He didn't know exactly what God was going to do. He didn't know step one, two, and three. He didn't know how God was going to intervene, but he trusted that God was going to provide. If there's anything that he's learned in his life, it's that God is a provider and that he makes good on his promises. He waited 25 years for a son and God provided. He provides in his timing and his way because we don't have his blueprint and that can be difficult, but God always provides. And so when this request comes to Abraham, this command really to go and to sacrifice his son on the mountain of Moriah, 
he is confused, probably baffled even. And yet, he trusts that God will provide. There's a really interesting detail if you look at verse 5. When Abraham looks at the two young men who accompanied them on the journey, and he says, we're going to go up there. Look what he says. Stay here with the donkey. This is to the two young men. And I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You see, Abraham has no idea how God is going to provide. He is just living out of courageous faith. He is following God with courageous faith. He is trusting in his provision. And he tells these young men that are with him, listen, we're going to go over there and worship, but we are going to come back. I don't know how God's going to provide. He has told me to sacrifice my son, but I know that the son that God has given me is a son of promise. And God always provides. And so I'm going to trust him in this courageous faith. And I'm going to follow him. And, and we're going to come back. Interesting that he says that. He knew that God would provide. You see, Abraham, as we see through his life, there's this faith that grows in him that's not cautious. It's courageous faith. Trusting not in himself and his ability to manufacture and fix a situation, but trusting in the character of God. Even when he has no idea how God is going to resolve the situation, he trusts that God is provider and he will provide. There's a quote by Dallas Willard, who was a Christian philosopher. He said, The cautious faith that never saws off a limb on which it is sitting never learns that unattached limbs may find strange, unaccountable ways of not failing. You see, courageous faith can follow after God boldly, not because it trusts in itself and its ability and its spiritual maturity. Courageous faith can follow God boldly because it trusts in the character of God. Because despite what is happening in and around you, you know who God is, and therefore you can live courageously. You can follow God boldly. You see, when you live courageous faith, as we see here with Abraham, which certainly is an example of courageous faith, trusting in God's character as provider, when you live courageous faith, you can experience God's unexplainable provision. As the quote says, when you saw a limb off of the chair that you're sitting on and you trust that God is going to keep you up, you will find unexplainable ways by which God does that. And this is one of the, the beautiful realities of living courageous faith, trusting in the character of God, is that you will see God's unexplainable provision. So the question is, how do you live this type of courageous faith? How do you live this faith that we see that Abraham lived out? And it's by clinging to the provision of a son, of God's son. You see, Abraham was clinging to the reality that Isaac, his son, was a son of promise. A son that God established an everlasting covenant with him. That's what God told Abraham. He would establish an everlasting covenant with his son. 
And Abraham's clinging to this, that God is up to something. He can't see how. He's confused about the process. He doesn't have the blueprint. And yet he knows God's promises are true and sure and God will provide. And so he holds tightly to the character of God as he clings to the promises given to his son. But this story and what we see here in this event is not just to see a glimpse of Abraham and and his courageous faith as he clings to the character of God as provider, but it's to point us and to point Abraham to the provision of a better son, the provision of God's son. Look at the details of this passage. They get to the mountain, and the mountain that they get to, it says, is Moriah. Mount Moriah is Jerusalem. It's where Jerusalem sits today. So God directs them to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem, which is this mountainous country, and they're at the bottom of the hill. And Abraham tells his son Isaac to take the wood and to carry it on his shoulders. So Isaac carries the wood on his shoulders as he walks up the hill in Jerusalem. And then at the top of the hill, there's an altar prepared. And as the altar is prepared... Isaac is laid upon the wood. And as he's laid upon the wood, he's bound. And the way that he would have been bound would have been like this. His arms would have been tied and his feet would have been tied. And as he's bound there, right before Abraham goes to sacrifice his son, the angel stops him and provides a substitute. The substitute was a ram, a male sheep, that was stuck in a thicket, in a thorn bush, by its horns. It was a ram that had a crown of thorns. And the ram with a crown of thorns was then substituted for Isaac, and the ram was then laid and bound to the wood and killed and burned up. And Abraham says, on this mount, on this mountain, this very place in Jerusalem, God will provide. And he did. He provided a male lamb, the lamb of God, who wore a crown of thorns, who carried the wooden cross up the hill to Golgotha, the top of Jerusalem. And he was laid upon the wood, and he was bound with nails, and he was lifted up. But see, here's the difference. God did not spare his only son. God sacrificed his only son for you and for me. He provided his son so that we might come to find him as provider in everything. What's the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16? For God so loved the world. He so loved the world. He so loved you that what did he do? He gave his only son. Like he gave. He did not substitute for someone else. He gave his only son to be sacrificed. So that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see that there is promise given to you when you look to the provision of a son that God did not spare his only son, Jesus Christ. The lamb of God who wore the crown of thorns bound to the wood and lifted up and sacrificed for you. When you see this, when you believe this, that God has provided his only son. 
how could you doubt that he will not provide everything else? He did not spare his son for you. He gave his son for you. He will give you everything else that has been promised, but we aren't given his blueprint. And so we have to rely in faith that God is a provider in his perfect timing and he does work all things for good and we can cling to that and we can live courageous faith. Why? Because we know God provided his son for us. Why would he not provide us all good things? So my prayer for us as a church is that we would live courageously in our faith. That we would follow God boldly even when it baffles us and confuses us because we know the character of God, that he is always going to provide. And we can cling to that because he provided Jesus for you and for me. Will you pray with me?